0: All right, I ask you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. If you're going, well, I'm going to need that pew Bible, I hope you're going to tell me the page. And the pew Bible's on page 535, Ezra chapter 1. We'll come back and uh, read a little bit from Ezra here in just a moment. Earlier this week, Angela and I went to dinner. And we entered this place, and we saw a sign on the counter, and it read this, quote, We have restarted our letter of the day program. Today's letter is R. You go, okay, not seen that before. I don't remember when they used to have it, so I don't remember them bringing it back, so I'm seeing this new sign. And it reads on there, we learn more by reading, it said in the fine print that if your first name begins with the letter R, you were entitled to a free sandwich with any purchase. I'm going, that's cool. My name, first name, begins with the letter R. So some of you are likely saying, hold it. The name Jeff does not begin with the letter R. And to that, I would say that you are correct. But Jeffrey is my middle name. My first name is Robert. Now, this may be new information to some of you, and somebody in the room, I told you yesterday this is going to be new information for you, perhaps. My full name, Robert Jeffrey Rasnick. Now, the only times I'm called Robert were on the first days of school, and when something requires a legal name. And you're going, why? Why would parents call their child Robert, I mean, name their child Robert, but call him Jeff? Well, I'm not sure, but my dad is here today, so perhaps you want to ask him. So I tell the guy that I'm, when I'm ordering that my first name begins with R, and he said, well, I'm going to need to see your ID. He needed me to prove to him that my first name actually began with the letter R. So I showed him my ID and I got my free sandwich. And yes, free sandwiches taste really good. (laughs) Now in that backdrop, that strange backdrop, let's stand and read from the book of Ezra chapter one. Ezra chapter one, I'm gonna read the first four verses but I'm going to encourage you before I even read them, don't close your Bible when you sit down. Ezra chapter 1, picking up in verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, "'Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem.' And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture opened. Now, I checked. I have never preached a sermon from the book of Ezra before. Actually, I went back and I have all of my sermons and all of my lessons and all of my Wednesday nights. I keep them on my computer and I can access all of them. The last time I even referred to a scripture in Ezra was in a sermon on in June of 2018. I've talked with people this week as I've mentioned Ezra and they're going, I don't know that I've ever heard anything from the book of Ezra before. So I'm not claiming anything new. I can just tell you that I felt God's call to the book of Ezra this Monday morning. I came into the office. That's the day I start. The only time I'm not preparing for something is when I get out of the pulpit here in just a few minutes, and I don't prepare anything until I come in on Monday morning. So I give myself that, that kind of time frame. But I started early Monday morning knowing that this was God's next step that he wanted me to take, which leads me to believe as pastor that it's the next step that God wants us as a church family to take as well. Now, these verses that I just read, they give us a ton of information that we need to take a moment to understand, to get the context of what has happened, to stay in the context of what is happening, so that we will then know what we are supposed to do as it happens in our lives. And so there's an application. Again, we're looking back to understand what's going on now so that we will know what to do moving forward. So even though we're talking about something we've not been in before in Ezra, we're going to talk about history just a little bit. There is something that God has for you today that you are to walk out of here today with, ready to do for His glory and for His honor. Amen? So let's jump in here together and let's figure out what it is. And it could be different for me as it is to you. But in verse 1, it says that the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. Now, Persia is the dominant kingdom in the world. Persia has become this dominant kingdom in the world because they have just conquered the previous dominant kingdom of the world, which was Babylon. Now, we know Babylon. Babylon is where Daniel was. Babylon is where Nebuchadnezzar was. And the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years by the time we get to this scripture right here. And they had been in captivity because of their unfaithfulness. And God had warned them and warned them and told them and told them through the prophets through the years that if they were not faithful to serve him, that he would have to remind them who he was and their role and uh, put them in captivity. And he had warned them through many prophets that this captivity would come if they were not faithful. Isaiah mentioned it in chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 39, and all speak to this captivity or this type of punishment that God was going to place on the people. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon began deporting Jews into Babylon. He destroyed the city. <coughs> he destroyed the city, the temple, and the walls. Scripture teaches that the temple vessels, the mighty men, the craftsmen were all deported. Nebuchadnezzar took everybody that he believed was important and relocated them from Judah to Babylon. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took all but the, quote, poor of the land. Can I just start with a reminder to you, church, that God always keeps His promises. Amen? God always keeps His promises. God has kept His, this promise of captivity to Judah For 70 years because they weren't faithful. God has made many promises in his word. And I'm not going to make this a promise sermon. But what I want to encourage you with is when you see God make a promise. In Sunday school, so many of us are studying, whether it's in Thessalonians or Revelation or Matthew 24 and 25. We're studying in times. It seems like that we're all sort of coalescing in the same general area in Sunday school. And if you're not in Sunday school, let me just take a moment to invite you to Sunday school. I'd be happy to help you find the appropriate class, and if the appropriate class for you does not exist, we'll start one just for you, okay? You being a small group Bible study is an important thing because it's there that we learn that God keeps his promises, always keeps his promises, and it's important for us to know that, but this captivity had a specific time. God said, God didn't say, I don't love you. I'm giving you up and Babylon's gonna come get you. He said, no, I love you. And therefore I am going to control for a period of time where you live, how you live. And it's going to be for 70 years. Now, I want to read in context. You don't have to go there. I'm already there, but if you wanna make make a note. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah was before this time. Jeremiah 29 In verses 10 to 14, Scripture says this. Jeremiah 29, picking up at verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon. Isn't that cool? God's already telling them what's going to happen long before it started happening. But he says, After 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me, and when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I had driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Seventy years, Jeremiah said, after 70 years, you're going to get to come home. Nebuchadnezzar takes them away. Seventy years of captivity. Then all of a sudden, in the providence and the sovereignty of God, which is God ruling and overruling this world, Nebuchadnezzar is overcome. Babylon ceases to become the world power. Cyrus King of Persia, and Persia becomes the world power, and Cyrus has an entirely different perspective about how people need to be treated and dealt with. Nebuchadnezzar's out, Cyrus is in, and now we're at verse 1. I've given you a little bit of context so that you'll see where we've gotten to. Okay, It says in verse 1 that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make a proclamation. Again, we see the sovereignty of God. Almighty God ruled and overruled to put Cyrus in leadership, in position, and now he's stirring his heart. He's working in Cyrus' life. I hope you know how that feels. I hope you know as a child of God what it feels like to have the Spirit of God stirring in your heart. Sometimes it's stirring you to call you to do something. Sometimes the Spirit of God is stirring you to cause you not to do something. Sometimes the Spirit of God is convicting you because you have done the wrong something. But I pray that you know what it feels like to have the Spirit of God stirring in your life. And if the Spirit of God is stirring in your life, I need you to lean into that and allow the Spirit of God to have His way in and through your life, regardless of what it is. So Scripture tells us in verse 1 here that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make a proclamation. And he said, the Lord gives us this background, he said, to fulfill the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And in verses 2 through 4, let me give you a summary of what the proclamation of Cyrus of King of Persia said. He said this and he wrote this. God has blessed me. God has commanded me that the Jews that are in captivity can now go home. You can rebuild your temple, and those who do not go, you should help them by giving. Now, it's interesting how this looks a whole lot like Exodus. God in charge and leading his people. You see, God wants to always lead his people, if we would but allow him to. God is keeping his promises. Israel now gets to go home. Verses 5 through 6, which we didn't read. Let me just give you some summaries. We get going here just a little bit. Verses 5 and 6, some Jews choose to return. You know what that means by default? Some Jews choose to stay. In verses 7 through 11, King Cyrus. He returned all of the vessels from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had seized. If you go back, when they came, they seized all of the platters. You can see in those verses there, they number them. They have an inventory of them. It was felt, historically speaking, that when you went in and you raided the temple of people, you were taken into captivity, and you took all of their articles of worship, that you took their heart from them. And so not only is Cyrus saying, you can go home, he said, let us give you all of the stuff that you use in your temple to be able to worship God. They were free to go, and they were free to worship God. So if you're hanging with me there, I'm now at Ezra chapter two, verse one. And it says these words right here. These are the people who come back from captivity. Ezra chapter 2, 70 verses long, lists the people who choose to return to Judah, to Jerusalem to rebuild. Now, some chapters like this are really hard. I've talked with people this week intentionally and about this. And, you know, when you look at chapter 2, you can quickly see what I'm talking about, right? The names are hard. There's not much new information. There are numbers given. It's just Begat, begat, but it's really just people of, people of, people of, people of, men of, people of, families of, sons of. And you talk about all these things, but for 70 verses. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll go, what's the application? I talk to people this week and they go, well, when I get to things like that, I read Ezra chapter 1, I get to that, I go, okay, that's a list of names. I flip over and I go to chapter 3. Do you know that when you bypass any piece of the word of God that he's intended for you, that you have missed something that God has for you. And so I encourage you, I'm not going to read the 70 verses in chapter two, but I want to encourage you and hope that you will go home today and read chapters. You mean, Jeff, you're giving us homework? Well, I'm not giving you homework. The Lord's told you that this is the word that should lead your life. I'm just giving you a specific page to focus on. But Ezra, chapters 1, 2, and 3 would be a great thing for you to go back. And hopefully it'll mean more to you because of the time that we're spending together. But as we read this, you're going, our question should be, what does this, these 70 verses, what does this mean to me? So I got my pen and my pad out on my desk on Monday morning. I started writing down every name. I wrote down every verse it was found in. I wrote down all of the number of people that those people listed. I just really wanted to get an understanding of that passage and what it means to me. So I just, one thing I know to do is grab paper and pen and God's word and just spend some time in it. It started with the leader, Zerubbabel, then his lead men, and then verse by verse, by name, God believed that this was important for us to capture. So we must make it important to us. And I can only share with you What God shared with me while I was doing this, perhaps as you take the time to study it this week, he will give you same, similar, or maybe even greater insight as it relates to your life. So I asked a basic question of myself. What is the purpose of a list? Not this list. Why do we make lists? What are the characteristics of lists? So I came up with these things that, that I wrote down. Think about lists that you make grocery lists, to do lists. We make lists all the time. A list shows you specific things, not general things, right? A list is specific. Every one of these people are real people that God wants to use, they are specific people, not just a general term. A second thing a list does is a, tip, a, a list typically shows the exception, not the whole. When you make a grocery list, you don't go in and write down everything you have. You write down the things that you don't have. Your list is typically an exception, which means that the people who left, these people who went to Jerusalem, they were the exception, not the majority, when you think about this list. Second, the third thing about this list is a list is typically the smaller part of the universe. Your list is the things that you need to do, not the list of everything in the whole wide world. And then a list causes you to remember. You know, I walk into the store, and Angela doesn't walk into the store very often. She's found out that if you just go online and order it and pull up in the parking lot, they'll bring it to you but I've told her that we're not saving any money doing that because by the time you give that sweet person who brings your groceries to you a $10 or $15 tip, you've sort of blown all your savings from your groceries. She just likes to give tips that way. And I'm going, you're going, Jeff, why did you even tell us that story at all? And I'm sitting here telling you that list caused you to remember, and I don't use that kind of shopping. I go in with the list, and I'm marking it off. And my general rule is, is I get everything on the list and then anything else I want to that's not on the list. But the list helps us remember what we are to get. The list, this list tells us exactly who returned from Babylon, from captivity into Jerusalem. This list proved the heritage of the Jews. If you'll notice, we talk about their name and where they're from. They all know their heritage as a Jewish person. They had to find out, were you a Jew going back? It was important for the people to prove who they were to set themselves apart. Remember, I had to prove who I was at this restaurant earlier this week. Just because I said my name began with the letter R doesn't mean it did until I showed them my ID. This is a way of identifying people, and God wanted us to know who these people were. The list also tells us that most people did not choose to return. If you read all of the Scripture and you add up all of this, Ezra chapter 2, verse 64 tells you that there were 42,360 Jews. Verse 65 says there were 7,337 servants. And then, Zach, verse 65 says there were 200 singers that went along to be able to keep them moving and worshiping. Let me reread Jeremiah 29, 11. Once again, I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11 says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. You know what I take from that? The Lord wanted them to go home. That was his plan from the beginning. I love you. You need to be faithful to me. If you're not faithful to me, then you're going to have to go in captivity or time out for 70 years, but I will bring you back, and when you're back, you will be my people still, and you will do the things that I want you to do. Those are my plans and purposes for you. But it's an interesting thing. Ezra chapter 2 says that only 50,000 people came back. And these nearly 50,000 people that are recorded here in Ezra chapter 2 are heroes in the Bible. They left the captivity of Babylon for the responsibility in Jerusalem. God called them back home to do a difficult job, to rebuild the temple and the city and to restore the Jewish community in their own land. This noble adventure, history says, took them about four months plus a great deal of faith and courage and sacrifice. And as you read God's word, you can see the providential leading of God from the beginning to the end. Made me think of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? So 49,897 people returned. What about the rest? I just stopped and I spent a good half of a day, just put that thought in my head as I was doing other things. What about the rest? Why didn't they come? Why didn't they leave? They stayed, perhaps, because life in captivity had become their new normal. Perhaps they stayed because it was safer, easier, more comfortable. Perhaps they stayed because they were scared... Believe It's been 70 years. Perhaps they stayed because living in captivity did not seem too bad to them. However, when I read Scripture, I believe it was God's purpose and intention for all of them to return, but yet just 50,000 returned, this first return. There's another one. Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, which most everybody Has probably heard of, makes this statement Thank God, He gives us difficult things to do. Thank God, He gives us difficult things to do. And I was reminded in that moment that Jesus left the comforts of heaven to do the hard work of redemption. Aren't you glad? but when I think about us, we all tend to lean toward the easier path. I just have to stop. I didn't know about this this morning until it happened, so it's not part of my notes, so I can walk over here and talk about it. But um, I had a church member come up to me this morning and, and talk to me about a book. They didn't know where we were going today or anything. They talked to me about a book, and the name of the book is called Coward Church. Is that right? Yep. Coward Church. And in there, it talks about how in the end times, there's going to be persecution and challenges that the church is going to fall into. And I thought it was very appropriate given that so many of our studies these days are talking about end times and things like that. And I mentioned this in my Sunday school class, but this Coward Church, this author purports, he says, that people in America, they are going to be really concerned about the persecution that they are going to face because of their Christianity. And this author takes a very strong lean in that and basically he says don't flatter yourself. The premise of the book is is that we Christians in America don't really know persecution because we're not really living the life that God has called us to do. We've stepped away from what God would want us to do. And therefore when they go looking for Christians to persecute in America, they may not find a lot of us easily sticking out. Because we stay in captivity. Circumstances, life challenges, issues have caused us to step out of where we were. And we've gotten comfortable with the newness of what we have. And if we're not careful, when God comes to call, it's time to go home. This is the plan I have for you. 50,000 people go, but the rest of the country just stays put. We all tend to lean toward the easier path. I get it. But Jesus taught us that it's the narrow path that we should lean toward, the harder path that leads to God, that leads to righteousness. And Scripture teaches, and few take that path. I've learned that when God tells us to do difficult things, it's because he wants us to grow. Grow in our knowledge of him, our faith in him, and our experiences of him. Perhaps you are sensing God is calling you to do something hard, difficult, challenging in your life. Perhaps God is calling you to take a step of faith, to grow in your trust of him. Or perhaps you're not sensing God calling you to do anything difficult. And if that's how you feel, I challenge you to really begin to seek him because I believe that God is always calling us to do difficult things. Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. We're called to do difficult things, church, and so I want to encourage you up front this morning. Say yes. Say yes to the difficult path that God is calling you to take. Now, I don't know exactly what it is for you, I just know that whatever it is for you, God's going to make sure that you know what it is and you're going to have an opportunity and you're either going to stay, take a step toward the difficult hard road of serving what God's called you to do for his glory or you might just decide to stay, right, where you are comfortable in captivity. Many years later, I just fast-forwarded hundreds of years, in this re-established Jewish community, Jesus prayed. Now I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26. Let me just read these two verses for you. Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 and 39. It says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, in an impossibly hard and difficult situation, had a choice. He'd already told us, I could end it all. I could just call legions of angels and they'll come and tend to me. But Jesus chose the difficult path that God called him to do. Jesus submitted himself to the Father to complete God's redemptive plan. Jesus did the hard work, the difficult work of the cross, so that you and I could have life. Now, as Christians, we are going to be called to do the hard work of living those lives faithfully for Christ. We are called to share Jesus with others. Will you do this hard work? Perhaps today you have an identity problem. Perhaps today your name is Robert, but everybody calls you Jeff. God gives us an opportunity to plot our ID, to prove who we are, and it unlocks all of His blessings. But perhaps today, the Spirit of God is moving in your life, and you're finding it hard to prove that you know Jesus. You know, that day is going to have to come. Jesus will know whether He knows you or not. If today you do not know Jesus, I want to encourage you to make that decision, to accept Jesus as your Savior today. You know, I've been praying for someone today to accept Jesus as their Savior. And I don't know when we'll find out, but I can tell you that someone has today. Church, we've got to do the hard work. we got to leave where we are and go to where God tells us to go. Amen? And so as we come to the Lord's table where we remember what Jesus did so that we could have redemption, we are called to remember. I just thought it was a great opportunity for us to tie these two things together.